All right. If you would take your Bibles, if you have it, and turn to Psalm 81. Psalm 81. Together. And it's a real privilege to get to speak this morning in both service. I'm looking forward uh, to being able to share with you what God has laid on my heart. As you may know, a black hole is something that scientists don't completely understand. The picture on the screen is a simulation of what a black hole looks like. And really, it's a, it's a region of space-time or in the universe um, where the gravity is so strong that nothing can escape for it, not from the black hole. Not even light can get out of a black hole. If it goes into a black hole, the light is trapped. And um, it's amazing to me. It's kind of the stuff of science fiction, you know. Um, you don't want to get sucked into a black hole, okay, because scientists say... Uh, if a person, if an astronaut were to get sucked into a black hole, what would happen is something they call spaghettification. I kid you not, okay? That's actually a scientific word, apparently. Um, but the astronaut will be stretched into a ribbon, uh, into a thin ribbon like this poor astronaut on the screen. And it, there, it's very uh, mysterious, uh, a black hole. What happens is a star dies and collapses and the gravity becomes so strong, they think that at the middle of a black hole, and there's, the mid, there's one at the center of most galaxies, including our Milky Way, um, the, it, that center of the black hole has almost infinite mass because the gravity just pulls everything in towards the middle. And uh, scary. Well, today I want to speak uh, about another black hole, okay, a figurative black hole, uh, but one that is sucking people from our culture in Ireland and around the world, in every day, and from which many cannot escape. When you get sucked into a black hole, there's a part of it called the event horizon. And if you pass the event horizon, you're never getting out of the black hole, okay? Whatever gets sucked past the event horizon is cannot get out of it. But I want to speak about another black hole. Um, in his book, uh, Democracy in America, a man named Alexis de Tocqueville noted that how Americans believed that prosperity could bring deep happiness. But he said such a hope was an illusion. Um, and obviously, we struggle with the same illusion in Ireland in 2021. I think you would agree, okay, that if we're prosperous, if we have money, that we will have deep happiness. And it's more surprising to me to learn, and Tocqueville continued to say, the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. And he spoke of a strange melancholy, often haunting inhabitants of democracies in the midst of abundance. And of course, what's surprising to me about that quotation is he wrote in the late 1800s. Let me ask you to answer this question in your mind. Do you think it's better or worse now? Do you think people are looking to prosperity in Ireland in 2021 more or less than back then? I would say more, you know. We think if we have uh, prosperity, we'll be happy. And of course, the black hole that I am speaking of is the hungry void of idolatry, of idolatry. And we'll explain what that means as we go along. And believers are by no means immune to the strong pull of this black hole of idolatry, this hungry void that is sucking people in in our culture left, right, and center. Well, let's read uh, Psalm 81, uh, verse, we're going to start in verse 8 and read down through the end of the chapter. 
because these verses really talk about idolatry, and we're going to try to unpack those um, over the next few moments um, together. So let's start in Psalm 81 and verse 8, and it says this, Hear, O my people, and I will testify unto thee, O Israel, if thou wilt hearken unto me. There shall no strange God be in thee, neither shalt thou worship any strange God. I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people would not hearken to my voice, and Israel would none of me. So I gave them up unto their own heart's lust, and they walked in their own counsels. Oh, that my people had hearkened unto me, and Israel had walked in my ways. I should soon have subdued their enemies and turned my hand against their adversaries. The haters of the Lord should have submitted themselves unto him, but their time should have endured forever. And notice verse 16, he would have fed them also with the finest of the wheat, and with honey out of the rock should I have satisfied thee. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we just ask that you would help us. Lord, we live in a culture that is full of idolatry, and Lord, many are empty, and God, we just ask that you would help us to understand what this means, Lord, to escape even from the black hole of idolatry, and Lord, to make you front and center stage in our lives. Lord, will you help us to understand, in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to notice, first of all, in verse 8 through 10, that what God intends for us is an unhindered, unfettered intimacy with him. God's goal for our lives is that we would have a close and a fiery relationship with him as our supreme God. That's what he designed us for. That's what we see in verse 8 through 10. This is God's plan. He says, O Israel, if you, if you will hearken to me, there shall be no strange God in thee. I am the Lord thy God. See that in verse 10? Which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. God wants to be your God today. He wants to be the one who satisfies the deepest needs of your heart. And I am convinced that the happiest and the freest we can ever be, no matter what your you know, relationship or lack thereof to God this morning, whoever you are, the happiest and the freest we can ever be is when we are walking with God. I'm convinced of that from the Bible, uh, from passages like Psalm 81 and Exodus 20, uh, verse 2 and 3, as we're going to look at this morning. But, you know, I've seen that borne out in my life. You know, times where God has been in his right place in my life, there's a happiness, there's a peace, there's a satisfaction. But when other things become God in my life, it all goes away. And often slavery um, uh, and addiction results. You know, that's what God has saved us for. That's what the gospel is all about. Uh, notice that uh, a lot of times when the Bible speaks about salvation or a person entering into a relationship with God, it talks about us being reconciled to God. That means when enemies become friends, okay? When people who are at odds become friends. And the whole language of the gospel is about relationship, you know, it's, it's not a formula for getting to heaven, although God says if we put our trust in Jesus, we will be forgiven and we will go to heaven, but it's more than that. You know, that's what heaven's all about. Heaven's not about the streets of gold. Heaven's not about the mansions. Heaven's not about all the amazing things that we will experience in heaven. Heaven's about being with God. And our, the whole uh, 
plan of God and the gospel is about uh, being with him. Is that what you want today? Do you want, as I said, unhindered, unfettered, unobscured intimacy with God as your supreme God? Because that's what's on offer in the gospel. That's what's on offer for us as believers. Okay, If we don't want that, um, the message I'm going to share with you, it really won't help you. Okay, But if you want that, uh, God wants to give that to you. Now we need to talk for a moment about the greatest commandment. Uh, we just read uh, Psalm 81 uh, verse 8 through 16. I want to draw your attention um, to uh, the next few verses. Here verse 13 through 16. God says, Oh that my people had hearkened unto me and Israel had walked in my ways. I should, I should soon have subdued their enemies and turned my hand against their adversaries. And then he talks in verse 15 more about how God would defeat the enemies of Israel if they would just turn to him as their God. And then notice verse 16. He says, He should have fed them also with the finest of wheat and with honey out of the rock should I have satisfied thee. Now think about this for a second. What's a God anyway? Okay. We talk about God needs to be the God of our lives. Well, what is a God anyway? Okay. Well, this passage defines it for us. Okay. First of all, Notice that there in verse 14, um, it's talking about Israel are facing some enemies, some challenges in their life. And God is, he is commanding them to turn to him. He's, he's more than commanding, he's pleading with them. He's saying, please turn to me. Because if you would turn to me, if you would listen to me, I will help you with the challenges that you face. And the first thing that God is to you and me is the one who rescues us. The one who rescues you, particularly in bad times, in crisis, when we face challenges. What we turn to in our lives is our God. Make no mistake. So God, first of all, is the one who rescues you. Secondly, notice uh, at the end of verse 10, God says, Open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. It's a picture of a child or even a bird that needs to be fed by their parent. You know, think of a, a baby bird in the nest opening its mouth because it, it's hungry. It needs to be fed. God, a God is someone who provides your needs. Someone who meets the needs um, of your heart and of your life. But notice also um, in the second part of verse 16, verse 16 is very interesting because it says, he should have fed them also with the finest of wheat. Again, talking about how God, uh, our God is the one who provides our needs. But notice what it says at the end of the verse. And with honey out of the rock should I have satisfied thee. Do you know it's a very different thing? There's a difference between having what you need and being satisfied. Isn't there? Have you ever been at a place in your life where you had everything you could need or even want, but you were still unhappy? You know, the reality is, God wants to give us both. <laughs> and when he is the God of our lives, he not only fills our mouths, he not only provides our needs, but he satisfies our hearts. Satisfies our hearts. That's what, in many ways, uh, this, this world, all of us are looking for is that satisfaction. You know, Jim Berg said that anything that replaces God as the primary source of comfort in our lives becomes an idol. 
a substitute for God. Okay? So in answer to that question, what is a God, we see uh, those three simple, simple things. He's the one who rescues us. He's the one who provides our needs. He's the one who satisfies us. Okay? That's why in Exodus 20, and really Psalm 81 kind of references uh, Exodus 20. What's in Exodus 20? It's the Ten Commandments, right? Okay, we've got the Ten Commandments. And, you know, I, I've noticed sometimes that we very quickly pass over the first commandment, but it's really, it's the first commandment for a reason. It's very important. Notice uh, what it says. It says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And I've actually, uh, that's verse 3 and 4. Verse 2 says, and that's my fault, uh, verse 2 says, I am the Lord thy God that brought thee out of the land of Egypt. So God says, literally, I am your God. I have rescued you. Therefore, don't take any other gods in front of me. Don't substitute my place in your life with anything or anyone else. You know, it's interesting that both Exodus chapter 20 um, and Psalm 81, which we're looking at, both assume that God is our God. You know, as human beings, we were designed to have a relationship with God. Okay? Um, that was what we were designed for. You know, he is the only one who is worthy of your worship, of my worship. And, you know, he's the only one strong and smart enough to be the God of my life. You know, I am not strong enough, smart enough to be the God of my life. I will be dissatisfied. I will lack meaning and purpose in my life if I am the God of my life. But if God is the God of my life, as Exodus 20 commands, life will work the way it should work. That doesn't mean I won't have challenges, but I will be able to cope with those challenges because I have God at the center of my life. Okay? So again, it assumes that he's our God. Now, a couple of uh, years ago, uh, we were in South Carolina with Heather's family, and they, they lived there in South Carolina. And um, I was reading a book about uh, the Chernobyl disaster, which is very sad, you know, what happened there in the Ukraine um, during the Soviet Union. But I, was, I became fascinated with nuclear power, and we're there in uh, South Carolina, and I realized that there was a nuclear power station near where Heather's mom and dad lived. So Heather's dad said, come on, we'll, we'll go down to the nuclear power plant. They have a visitor center and it, just, you know, it explains how um, nuclear power works. The kids will love it. So we went down. You know, really the principle of nuclear energy in a sense is simple. But a nuclear power plant is a very complicated thing, I learned. All the things that have to be done to cool that uranium and to keep everything safe and everything working the way it should. You know, uh, Chernobyl was an example of how badly things can go wrong if a nuclear power plant is not very, very carefully run. Okay, now, here's an example of some substituting something other than the true God for the God of your life. My son, um, he's not here this, this morning, he has a sore throat, but um, Sean loves science he loves particularly zoology he's fascinated with animals okay and we we say he's like an encyclopedia you you bring up an animal and he will give you some fast facts about that animal some some of them animals that i've never heard of okay 
um, but he loves science, you know. So he's a smart kid, you know. I'm a bit biased, but, you know, he's a smart kid. But, you know, imagine uh, Sean was made the managing director of the Oconee nuclear power plant in South Carolina. He was in charge of running it. Do you think that would be a good thing? Now, no insult to Sean, but I don't think he's qualified to run a nuclear power plant. He might be smart, but he's not ready for that. You know, you will find probably the guy that is in charge, or the man or lady who's in charge of the Oconee nuclear plant, probably has three PhDs, and they worked in another nuclear plant for 10, you know, 20 years before they ever became the boss of this nuclear plant. You know? Why? Because it's a very complex operation, and it takes some uh, skill and ability. Do you know what? That's what it's like putting yourself or anything else as the god of your life. God is the only one who is strong enough, who is smart enough to be God of our life. You know, let me um, just make a quick note that there can be other blessings and people in our lives that we enjoy. Having God as first and foremost in your life does not mean that you don't enjoy the blessings of life. But it means that you don't let them come, become gods, become objects of worship. And we never put them in front of God or between him and us. A good example in Bible times was worshipping the sun. You know, is the sun bad? No, the sun is very good. God made the sun, right? But the sun is not God. I mean, cultures down through history, even in Ireland, have worshipped the sun. Why? Because it's this amazing orb in the sky and it's the source of, uh, you know, the uh, agriculture and life and all of that. And it's so easy to look at the sun and say, wow, we should worship this. Uh, but that's an example of taking something that's good that God gave us and turning it into an object of worship. So uh, there can be other blessings in our life, but God says, don't make them gods, okay? Now, notice in verse 13, it says, just mentioned this briefly as well. It says, oh, that my people had hearkened unto me and Israel had walked in my ways. When God is center in our lives, we are listening to him and we are walking in his ways. God cannot truly be my God, my source of rescue, provision, satisfaction, while I'm doing my own thing, okay? Um, we'll, we'll look at it in a few minutes. Uh, something becomes an idol when I'm willing to disobey what I clearly see God wants me to do in the Bible to serve that desire, you know? This is, is key for us. Um, so having God as center of your life, it includes submission to him as Lord. It involves listening to him, walking in his ways. Notice uh, verse 11 and 12. Uh, it says, but my people would not hearken to my voice. Here's Israel living in idolatry. And how does God describe them? He says, they will not listen to me. And Israel would none of me. They don't want to know. They want to have nothing to do with me. That is a description of idolatry. And it says in verse 12, so I gave them up unto their own heart's lust. And they walked in their own counsels. You know, it's a sad place to be when God stops striving with us. And he lets us on to serve our idols. That's the beginning of destruction in our lives. And so we need to recognize God is the only one um, who uh, can be the center of our lives. As I already um, ex explained a little bit, the language of the gospel, it talks about relationship. When it talks about us being reconciled to God, 
The idea is not just that we are judicially forgiven. We are. But that we're forgiven so that we can be close to God and he can be the God of our lives. And so in answer to the question, does this apply to unbelievers? The answer is yes. All of us were made for a close relationship with God. And our life literally cannot work without it. Uh, Timothy Keller uh, is a Christian author. You might have heard of him. He's the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church uh, in Manhattan, okay, in New York City, okay. And he came to New York City many years ago, and he began to try to preach the gospel. And of course, New York City is one of the most secular places on planet Earth. I mean, you can find every belief under the sun um, in uh, the five boroughs of New York City, okay? And so he begins to try to explain the gospel. It's totally different. He'd come from a, a, a rural country place um, where he had ministered before, and he said it was totally different. But he, re he recognized early on that if he would explain idolatry even to people that were unbelievers, a lot of times that grabbed them. They understood that. He said this, he said this approach was very effective with young secular professionals. The concept of idolatry helps them understand their own drivenness, fears, addictions, lack of integrity, envy of others, and resentment in properly theological terms. It tells them they have been looking to their careers and romances to save them, to give them something they should have been looking for only in God. And as far as I understand, he had young professionals in New York City coming to Christ in time because they realized, I have everything, but I have nothing. God is not the center of my life. And no wonder I'm enslaved in addiction. No wonder I'm dissatisfied because I was designed for God to be the center of my life. And so, yes, this is for everybody. You know, idolatry is, um, in many ways, our major problem. And it's what we need. So, what is an idol? An idol, just to recap, is anything that takes the place of God in your life. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, an idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. And get this, anything that holds a controlling position in my life is an idol. Okay, helpful. Alexander McLaren deals with it more from the, the standpoint of our affections, our desires. What I prize most, what I should be most grief-stricken to lose what is the working aim of my life and the hunger of my heart? That is my idol. That is my idol. You know, idols can obviously be sinful things, okay? And that's kind of obvious to us. Back to the Ten Commandments we were looking at a minute ago. Uh, you know, God says, I am the Lord your God. Don't have any other gods before me. And then he goes down the list and he gives nine more commands. But do, do you know that the remaining nine commandments are symptoms of dethroning God in our lives? And, uh, you know, in fact, Martin Luther taught that we never break any of the other nine commandments without breaking the first commandment. The first error we ever make when we sin is that God is no longer the center of our lives. Think about it. You know, God says, uh, don't bear false witness. Don't lie. Okay. Why do we lie? We lie because our reputation or some other desire in our heart is more important to us than God, more important to us than following him. 
you know, I, really, ideally, we should want to be honest because we want to follow God. We want him to be the center of our lives. Adultery. A person commits adultery because the pleasure of sin is more important than doing what God wants them to do and being faithful to their spouse. People say, it will make me happy. And maybe enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season and then after a while they say, well, that didn't work. It didn't make me happy. Why? Because God has been dethroned in our lives and we've gone and done something that grieves him and what we need to do is come back to him because he is the only one who can satisfy us. Stealing. Getting what I need becomes more important to me than trusting God to provide and, you know, going about it in a legitimate way like working um, and following him. So, you see, the list goes on and covetousness. Wow, we could spend a whole message on that, but we won't. Um, But covetousness, desiring something that I don't need, God hasn't chosen to give me, but I want that. You know, I'm looking to those material things um, or people to satisfy in my heart um, what only God can satisfy. Okay, that's the, the, the basis of covetousness. But you know, the thing that's tricky is idols can also be good things. Okay, and this is what often trips us up. You know, the first thing as I've seen over the years as a pastor, the first thing that often pulls people away from God is relationships, romantic relationships. You know, a romantic relationship in the right place is a wonderful thing. It is a good thing, okay? But, you know, a romantic relationship that becomes your God is an idol, okay? Um, You've heard the song, Rescue Me, okay? That's an old song, isn't it? Um, Fontanella Bass uh, sang that song. I know uh, some... Um, people of a certain vintage are responding like, yeah, I know that one, okay. (laughs) But in the song she says, rescue me, take me in your arms, rescue me. I want your tender charms because I'm lonely and I'm blue. I need you and your love too. Now it seems so simple, okay, maybe I'm overthinking it. But that's idolatry, okay. That lady is looking to some lover in her life to satisfy her. Who does she turn to when she's low? Who does she turn to when she's lonely? She turns to her lover. And the reality is, make no mistake, no human relationship, no matter how wonderful, can meet the deep needs of the human heart. No relationship. So many pop songs today are much more blunt. They really express worship of some lover. If you listen to them, Uh, my life can't work without you I need you come back you know I'm sad and you're the only one who can help me you know the reality is again romantic love is a wonderful thing but your love cannot be your God it won't work because God is the only one who can fill that place in your life sometimes career work money The things that money can buy can become an idol for us. Um, We become so uh, consumed with that. And and honestly, it can become become consuming. Uh, John D. Rockefeller uh, was at one point, I think, the wealthiest man in the world. And somebody asked him one day, how much money does it take to make a man happy? And he said this. He said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. You would think he was happy. He had millions. But the reality is... Um, career, work, money, materialism, it cannot satisfy 
the hole that only God can fill in our hearts and lives. So now, not only do these things not satisfy us, but they're not adequate to be the God of our lives. They actually enslave us. They actually often enslave us. You know, drug addiction, alcoholism, um, other forms of addiction are actually a very pure form of idolatry where I am looking to some substance or something in my life to rescue me uh, in my life. And the reality is it doesn't work. Uh, you know, David Foster Wallace was not a believer. I don't know if he's still living, but he wrote in a book uh, years ago. Um, he says, you know, most people think I'm just working hard to be a good writer. I'm just seeking to find someone to love me. I'm working out so that I can be a good steward of my body, you know. Uh, our body can become an idol. Uh, I'm working hard to accomplish something in politics or have a good career or make a little money. But he says, all these activities can be worship, even though we often won't admit it. And he says this, the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. And it's so true that our idols can eat us alive. So what are we to do with this? What are we to do with uh, what we're looking at this morning? Well, I want you to just notice um, in verse 13 here. It says, Oh, that my people had hearkened unto me and Israel had walked in my ways. I should soon have subdued their enemies. And he goes on to explain what would happen in their lives if they would enthrone God. And very simply, uh, we need to recognize this. God wants to be the God of our lives. He's not indifferent to the fact uh, that we are worshiping other gods. It's not like he doesn't care. You know, that just strikes me, verse 13. Oh, that my people. There's a deep desire in the heart of God. You know, we could look at other passages. We won't for time's sake where God describes himself as a, a loving and faithful husband. And often his people, uh, like an unfaithful spouse, going off and cheating on him with other people. And God is saying, come back to me. You know, God is a God who, in grace, he wants to bring us back to them. It's breaking his loving heart. And in his grace, he wants to restore that relationship with him. So how do we get this right with the Lord? Well, how to know if you have idols? Here's a few pointers that were helpful to me. First of all, you have an idol if you run to anything before God when you are low or you are in crisis and your world falls apart. What or who do you run to? Is it God or is it someone or something else? As I said before, you, you know you have an idol when you're willing to violate God's clear commands in the Bible to serve some desire. Recognize God is the only one who can be God of your life. You can trust him with your life. You can follow him and enthrone him as God of your life. And he will not um, mess up your life. Like I said, that doesn't mean it's all going to be plain sailing. But God will be with you in the most difficult times of your life. A sure sign, and this is uh, quoting from actually Timothy Keller, a sure sign of the presence of idolatry is inordinate anxiety, anger, or discouragement when our idols are thwarted. Wow. When our idol is threatened or we can't serve our idol or our idol is taken away, 
We are so angry. We are so discouraged. That is sometimes a sign to us that there's an idol in our hearts. There's an idol in our life. God is not front and center stage in my life. You know, you might say today, why don't I love God the way I should? Friend, you love something the way you should love God. We are worshipers. We as human beings are made to worship. You're worshiping something. And when you can identify the thing uh, that you are loving as you should love God and dethrone it, you will then be in a position to love God passionately and fully and to know all the blessings that flow uh, from worship, worshiping God. You know, recently as God was speaking to my heart um, about this uh, truth of idolatry, this passage uh, came to mind. Um, hold on one second. Here we, here we are. Uh, Isaiah 23, verse 13 through 14. This is an expression of our hearts as we recognize that we have idols in our life and we turn back to God. O Lord, our God, other lords beside thee have had dominion over us, but by thee only will we make mention of thy name. They are dead, they shall not live. They are deceased, they shall not rise. Therefore hast thou visited and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. Man, that's the heart of a person who's turning from their idols to God and saying, God, I need you. Friend, are you dissatisfied today? Are you enslaved today? Are your idols eating you alive? You know, I believe I've found something that satisfies my heart and there are no bad side effects. It's God, okay? As I keep him as the one who rescues me, who sustains me, who satisfies me as I follow him, I am discovering how life was truly intended to be lived. You know, just like you, I have a sinful tendency to enthrone other things in my life and it's a constant um, battle. I have to check myself and say, are other things becoming idols in my life or is God uh, at the center? But as I keep coming back to the cross I'm finding my identity in God's great love for me. I experience freedom. And all of us can. I think uh, most of us have. And uh, many are experiencing that freedom. You know, uh, I think of the words of an old song, uh, Harbored in Jesus. It's, it expresses the sentiment of a person either who is an unbeliever coming to Christ or somebody who's been drifting from the Lord and who comes back and says, God, I want you to be the center of my life. Once I was drifting, lost and in sin. Once I was dying, darkness within. Now I am living the way he planned, harbored in Jesus, kept by his hand. And the reality is that can be true for any one of us if we will come to, to God and uh, enthrone him. You know, perhaps today uh, your need um, is to believe on Jesus to be reconciled to God. Maybe you've never put your faith and your trust in Jesus. You can identify with the dissatisfaction and the enslavement of idolatry. You can see that God is not the center of your life. But you want him to be the center of your life. You've never believed on Jesus. You know, if that's the case, please speak to me afterwards. Or, you know, if you're watching online, uh, get in touch with us. You can email or you can message us. Um, and we will help you as much as we can. Um, you know, it will be uh, our joy to sit down and explain whatever questions you have from the Bible, how you can have that relationship with God. 
But maybe you are a believer, and as I said at the beginning, uh, believers are not immune to the pull of the black hole of idolatry in our world. It's because, you know, we're sinful. You know, we're saved, but there's still those impulses to sin and idolatry in our hearts. And, you know, if you need to cast down those idols in your life and come to God, please talk. We're going to have uh, Bethany and Josh come, and uh, they're going to play. And as the piano plays, talk to the Lord. Talk to him. Respond uh, to what he has done in your heart and cast down those idols. And in a minute, in a minute we will close uh, with a song. But let's stand together here um, as we close. And we're just going to, as I said, just take a quiet moment as we often do. And if God has spoken to your heart, speak to him. Be honest with him. He already knows. And cast down those idols in your heart and life.